Okay, let's get into this evening's session of Kingdom 101. And you know that we have been going through the disciples' prayer. So join me once more. Every week we've been praying this prayer together. So let's pray this prayer as disciples of Jesus Christ. And from the depths of our hearts, let's pray this kingdom prayer together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. This evening as we get into the teaching, I want to start by reviewing where we have been over the past few sessions. If you have been following us, whether here physically or listening to this recording, you know we have been going through a series about prayer. And it started quite a few sessions back with this title, When You Pray. Jesus was teaching His disciples how not to pray, what is a pattern of prayer, what would be the priority of prayer? And I want to encourage you to listen to this once more so that your prayer life can be encouraged and can also be more focused. But after teaching the disciples how not to pray, he teaches them how to pray. And so we get into the Lord's Prayer or the disciples' prayer, and we started with the very first session there entitled, That's My Dad. We unpack that one line, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Who is the one we are petitioning? Who is the one we are coming to? Who is this God that we serve? The next line, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I challenge you, let's invite the kingdom. Let's ask the kingdom to come amongst us. What is the kingdom all about? And we went through also quite a few positions of uh, the coming kingdom, the millennial kingdom. And for many Christians, they have never heard of many of these things. I think it's good if you review what the kingdom of God is so that you can understand when you pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thereafter came the title, Provision for the Mission, based on that one verse, Give us this day our daily bread. Now, if we are coming to the king and we're asking for his kingdom, and we say, Lord, your will be done, we're acknowledging that as he does his will on earth as it is in heaven, we are the agents on earth. It is his will that, we, that will be executed, but it is our assignments that we would have received. But as we move on these assignments, or you can call it the mission, we don't have to worry about the resources. He will give the provision for the mission. So don't keep asking for provision if you don't even understand what your mission is first. I firmly believe that if we move on the mission of the kingdom, God will provide the provision. Following that, we went to the next topic called the debt trap, unpacking the relevance of this next verse and forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now, I took great effort to, to teach this because there are some who are saying that this is no longer relevant. You know, Jesus has already forgiven us past, present and future. That, that This verse is no longer needed at all. 
And I hope that through this teaching, you will learn that we still must learn how to forgive even as we ask the Father to forgive us. And there are many people who don't move fully on their assignments because they are still trapped. They are trapped with this debt of unforgiveness. And if we don't release this, then we are not released freely to move on our assignments. The last teaching then, we spoke about how to deal with detours and distraction. If unforgiveness is something that holds us back internally, then temptations do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. These temptations are the external factors that the enemy can use to distract us, to derail us, to detour us from the things of God that he has prepared for us. And so, as we pray, do not lead us into temptation. We acknowledge the place of tests. God tests us to build us up, but the enemy will use that same situation to tempt us, to pull us down. Now, in every situation, there will be a test and there will be a temptation. The question is, which one will you choose? How will you respond? And without an assignment that is clear for you, the tendency is we get unfocused. We, we, we take our eyes off the task and we get all over the place and miss the entire big picture. So friends, we have been journeying all these weeks and I want to do this review with you because this evening we have come to that final concluding line. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And our title this evening is Thine, Not Mine. And I borrowed that one word called thine and other speakers might have used the same title before because in the old English, the King James, it says, for thine is the kingdom. So thine really means yours. And it just sounds nice because it rhymes with mine. So it's thine and it's not mine. We want to unpack this one line and I think it's so fitting for this prayer to close with this one line and for us this session to be the 50th session that we can declare God's kingdom, God's power, and also God's glory. So if you're ready, we're going to jump into our teaching this evening. As we look at this one line, the first question to ask is, is this line a part of the original text of Matthew? Because if you consult the commentaries, most likely, many of them will address this point first. Originally, did Matthew write this in his gospel? Is that a yes or is it a no? You will realize also in your Bibles, depending on your translations, some of you will read your Bible and say, yep, it's there. And others, in some translations like the NIV or the ESV, you don't find it there. Right? You have just a little note that points you down to say this was not in the original or in the older manuscripts. It's there as a footnote or, for example, in the NASB, it is there in brackets. So is it in or is it not? Now some say no. But as they look at the manuscripts, in the earlier manuscripts of Matthew, they, they found that this line was not in there until somewhere up in the 5th century. And what this means is that the older the manuscripts, the more accurate, right? Because it's closer to the time of its writing or the people copying it into various forms. 
But it was only until the 5th century that this line started to appear. They compared it with Luke chapter 11, verses 1 to 4, which is the other mention of this prayer, where Jesus taught it to his disciples. And it wasn't there. So since it wasn't there, then obviously, comparing with the other manuscripts, perhaps it was not in the original text. And so they conclude it was very possibly added by the early church. And the early church would typically follow Jewish practice that at the end of prayers, the Jews would close the prayer with words of praise and of spontaneous doxology. And so the church then found that to be good, followed that practice, and so added that one line of praise. So that's a group that says, I don't think so, not this line. But then there are other commentators, regardless of the proof of the text or the manuscripts there, they said, no, I I think it is probably in. Yes, it should be there and it was probably included by Matthew. Otherwise, this prayer would have ended rather abruptly. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then Jesus goes on to the next point, right? Now, how do you explain that? Well, in the Gospel of Luke, it's the same, right? It's not there also. How come it was not added in Luke's version? So the commentators say, well, Luke's context was different. Along the way to the cross, the disciples asked Jesus to teach them how to pray. And so it was in that context that Jesus taught, and it's totally appropriate and relevant that he would end with, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, because he himself was walking that road, that journey towards the cross. And there would have been, as I shared with you in the last teaching, temptation to veer from it, as well as a test of pressing through it. And so the commentator says, very, very possible and very relevant in that. Now, in the Gospel of Matthew, the prayer was taught in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, as we know. And this Sermon on the Mount is a teaching about the kingdom of God. And so, it is thus proper to end this prayer with a declaration of God's kingdom, His power, and His glory. And so, you have one side that says, no, it shouldn't be in. I don't think so. Another one that says, yes. So depending on the commentary that you read, the Bible that you're picking up, does it really matter to us? Now this is where we want to learn, right? Are we we reading something that's extra biblical or something that is inspired of the Holy Spirit? Does it really, really matter? I want to submit to you that as we look at this verse, and since it is in certain Bibles and in commentaries and people have also preached about it, Let's, let's take it as something that we can learn from, okay? And I find that through this one verse, it actually gives us a kingdom focus for the entire prayer as we end this. Because you realize as we have been going through the various teachings, after a while we can lose track of what this prayer is all about. It started with the kingdom and it ends with the kingdom, so it gives us the right kingdom focus. Secondly, it also helps to put things into proper perspective. It ends with this whole line and it reminds us it's all about God. It's not about me. 
It's everything about God. And I just feature in the things of God and along with the kingdom of God. The third point is especially important, which we will touch on a little bit more later, is that this line also gives us hope, eschatological hope. It's always a very big word, and I'm going to say it very, very slowly. It's about the end times. It is about something that is in the future. It gives us hope. Meaning to say, at this point, you and I, even while praying this prayer, sometimes we we don't see or we don't experience the kingdom of God fully. Isn't that not true? Right? And how how do we understand that? But once we pray this line, it says, but yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, yours is the glory. What we are saying is, we don't see it yet, but by faith, this is what we are declaring. This is the hope we have that one day it will be your kingdom, it will be your power and your glory. Having established that, let's go more deeply into this. If it was added by the church, what's the biblical basis, right? Did they just fish this line out from somewhere and just add it in because it sounded good? And if it was not added by the church, it's original. Now, where did Jesus then get this line? Obviously, there must be an Old Testament context. In 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verses 10 to 13, you find a very familiar passage. It sounds almost word for word. David, after collecting an offering, bringing in the resources for the building of the temple, this was recorded as his prayer and as his praise. Therefore David blessed the Lord before all the assembly, and David said, Blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Listen to that. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power and the glory, the victory and the majesty. For all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you reign over all. In your hand is power and might. In your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. Now therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. Does it sound familiar? Paraphrased, summarized, yours is the kingdom and the power, and the glory. Biblical, totally. Old Testament basis. Very, very consistent. You will find also another reference in Psalm 145, verses 10 to 13. Same thing. Talks about the praise, the glory of God, the kingdom of God that belongs to Him and Him alone. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 17 and 18, Paul writes this in his letter to Timothy, And it sounds very much like the last verse, verse 13 of Matthew chapter 6 that says, you know, lead us not into temptation, deliver me from the evil one, for yours is the kingdom and so on. Let me read this to you. Paul wrote, But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me and that all the Gentiles might hear. Also, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion and the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for His heavenly kingdom. To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Can you see that parallel? Can you see that application and the consistency of Scripture? And so, is it yes or is it no? To me, I'm not going to make a big deal of it. It helps me have the right focus. It gives me a proper perspective. 
And it shows me a hope that I have, that I hold on to, even as I declare this one line. So having given you this foundation and this introduction, I think we are ready now to go into the teaching proper. You're like, wow, still haven't started teaching. (laughs) Right? And in this one line, what we're really saying is, God, it's your kingdom, not mine. God, it's your power, not mine. God, it is your glory, not mine. It is thine, not mine. Let's look at each point by itself and and see what we can learn and what we can draw from these points for our own ministry implications and as people who desire to be on assignment for our King and our God. Point number one, God's kingdom, not mine. It is God's kingdom. He's sovereign and He is in total control. That's the first thing that we must always, always remember. I love the way David declared this. Israel had asked for a king. God gave them Saul, right? And Saul didn't really work out. Later on, David comes and takes that position, and he's a good king. Wow, he exceeded Saul. He was lifted up, and he was revered. He was loved by the people of Israel. And he brought the kingdom to a height, and he was ready to build a temple for God. And yet, David in his heart of hearts, and that's why he's called a man after God's own heart, after he has collected everything, after he he knows, you know, he has come to a certain level of success in the kingdom of Israel at that point in time, he declares, God, this is your kingdom. 1 Chronicles 29, we just read. God, this is your power. This is your glory. Everything that we have comes from you. I'm not the king. You are the king. I may be King David, as they call me, and you have appointed me and anointed me, but God, truly, you are the king. You are the one that's sovereign. You are the one who's in control. I am only your earthly representative. I am only an ambassador of you as the king, and this is your kingdom. It is God's kingdom. God is still the one who is sovereign, and He's still in control. It doesn't matter who is the leader in any country at this point in time, whether the president or the prime minister or whatever, the head of state, God is still the king. Is that an amen? amen. You see, we have to understand that when we, when we say, God, this is your kingdom, not mine, not ours, not any one of us, this is what we are saying. He has full control and everything He is sovereign over. Secondly, God establishes all authority. Scripture is very, very clear throughout in the Old Testament as well as the New. Now, we're familiar with Romans chapter 13, verse 1. It says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Now, whether you like this authority, agree with this authority or not, that's not the question. The point is that authority has been allowed by God. He establishes this authority because He's king. He gives power to whom He wants to give power. He gives you know, a position to whom He wants to give position, and that's fine. Daniel chapter 2, verse 21. Now, Daniel himself uh, was a conquered people, right? The, the people of Israel. He was serving in the courts of his enemies. And yet he declares this. 
in verse 21 of chapter 2. And he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and he raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Psalm 75 verses 6 and 7. For exaltation comes neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south, but God is the judge. He puts down one and he exalts another. See, God is king. He's king of everything. It is his kingdom. Whatever we are doing falls within his purview. It looks as if God is, has lost control and someone is, has come to usurp his throne. Never for a moment believe that. Right? We, may, we may see things that we don't like, we may not agree with, we may see that the situations are becoming worse and so on. But guess what? God is still seated on His throne. He's allowing you to, or us or the people to have their day, so to speak. You, know? you can play, play around a little bit here and there. But when the king steps in, he is still in control. And so in the nations, God can raise up good leaders. In the nations, God can allow evil leaders also. And sometimes in the wickedness of the people, if we steer away from God, God can allow and establish a leader that we deserve. Not necessarily He wants or He endorses, but He established that guy for an authority in that time. Do you know that in the church, it can happen also in the same way. God can remove churches. God can remove ministries. God can remove assignments. Jesus gave this warning very clearly in the book of Revelations, right? He says, you better get your act together. You better return to your first love and do the first work before I come and I remove your lampstand. Now, Jesus is not playing tricks with us. He's not giving a false threat. What He says, He means. See, God is King and He establishes all authority. Thirdly, we realize as He establishes it and He gives us the kingdom. What a privilege. That's why I put it in inverted commas. It says, ask for the kingdom, right? It is my Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. I say, wow, so you give me the kingdom and the kingdom is my law? No. No, it is still His. Thine, not mine. You say, but the word says give. What? No, He gives you the pleasure of the kingdom. He gives you the privilege, the honor, the fringe benefits of enjoying the things in the kingdom to be ruled by Him and Him alone. But the kingdom is still His. It is not ours. We get a privilege. We get a part of it. We are stewards in His kingdom. And He is happy to share it with us. He is happy to participate with us and us together with Him. See, Daniel told King Nebuchadnezzar, he says, do you know something? God has given you a kingdom, power, and glory. My God has given this to you. You better understand it. It's not you. I mean, Babylon was like the greatest nation at that point in time. And Nebuchadnezzar was like, whoa, no, I, I, I the man. Daniel is saying, sorry, king, you not the man. Okay, you may be king. But my God is the one who gave this to you. And if He gives it to you, He can take it away. See, God gives us the pleasure of the kingdom, the privilege and the honor of the kingdom. What a joy that we can serve Him in this kingdom to be ruled by a good and a loving King. Finally, if you know it's God's kingdom, then it's God's timing and God's will. We don't make things happen. 
You know, today in our uh, modern understanding in leadership things, you know, where they speak to us and they tell leaders, you know, you've got to make things happen. One leader said it very clearly and I echo his voice and I applying it to myself. I don't make things happen. God makes things happen. Amen. And sometimes we, when we see things happen, it's like, oh, it, it was by my, me, I was the one, I, I did it. <laughs> you know, if, if I was not like that, <laughs> it wouldn't have happened. If it's not for me, you know, it wouldn't be like that. You know? If it was me, oh, I would have done it in a different way. We don't make things happen. We can't force things hap- to happen. We can't generate anything. It is God's timing. It is God's will. He gives us a part. We move with Him. And, and He gives us that privilege of, of, of feeling really good about it when things happen. And I say this, I tell you with reverence and with respect and with awe, because in this past couple of years, man, I keep us awakening. I've seen that journey since day one until now. And I've seen how the ministry has progressed to a certain point, and when I look back, I can tell you, I don't know what I did. I don't know what I did. You know, I mean, I, I preached, you know, 50 sessions, praise God. You, know, you want me to pat myself on the back? I could do that. We go into 30, 40 churches, and that's what we're declaring. You know, I could do that. You know, I, I speak camps and so on. But you know something? I can do all these things, but I think I'm waking people up. I can't do that. Only the Holy Spirit can. Amen. It's God's kingdom, it's God's will, it's God's timing. I can't rush a single moment. I cannot make things happen. It is thine, it is not mine. We cannot control God. We can't force His hand. But I tell you what we can do. The only thing we can do is we can only be responsible for what has been given to us to do. Do you understand the difference? God gives an assignment. He tells you, this is what you need to do. Just do that. And in His time, in His plan, things begin to unfold. What are the ministry and assignment implications for us when we look at this first point? God's kingdom, not mine. If you are a pastor or you are a ministry leader, this question I think you have heard often. Whose kingdom are you building? Are you building really God's kingdom? Or are you building your own kingdom? And I can tell you in our hearts of hearts as ministers, full-time people, we all start out saying, oh, it's God's kingdom. But when it comes to a certain point, somehow, you know, we sort of kick God off the throne. And we begin to take credit for a lot of things and it starts to be my kingdom. Now, we won't say it openly, But it sure feels good to be in control. It sure feels good to have a group of people under you. And that's why the more people that I may have, let's say in my congregation, the more kingly I I feel. That's why it's so tempting to have more and more people. But the truth is, I'm not the king. God is the king. Today in kingdom talk, we say, oh, we have to rule and we have to reign. But you realize you can only rule and reign as much as you are ruled and reigned by God. If not, you'll be running the people down, you know, you'll be ruling them and you'll be controlling them and doing all kinds of crazy things because you are king and you're exercising power and authority over them. When do we begin to manipulate? When do we begin to hold this power and attribute it to ourselves? You see, it's God's kingdom. 
Today in Kingdom Talk, we, we speak of putting Christians in places of power. That sounds really good, but we have to be careful because if you swing to that extreme, you're going to fringe on dominionism. Meaning to say Christians will occupy all places of power. If we can get all presidents of states you know, to be Christians, God's kingdom will be established. That's the, that's the idea, you understand? That's a utopia, the Christian utopia that we are looking for. But I'm concerned because as we have seen, this election has just gone by. And more so in time to come, I think, Christianity is being politicized. And we must be careful. We must be very careful. When Pilate looked at Jesus and asked him, Hello, you king. Your people say, all these people say you king. You claim to be king, right? You don't look very king now, you know, in front of me. That's a Singlish translation. What did Jesus answer? My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. That line we must hold close to our hearts. Because if we serve God's kingdom, we must remember His kingdom is not of this world. Meaning to say, if you are on a kingdom assignment and you don't look to be very much on top, it's okay. You check your alignment. You have everything in place. You don't have to worry because God's kingdom is a different kingdom. The kingdom of God is, is not in the things that we see only. It starts primarily, first and foremost, within you. If you would obey the king and obey him through and through, it's not what is seen on the outside. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. And so I don't care how glamorous all the other kingdoms may appear. I don't care how glamorous how other ministries may appear. All I know is my God is still the king. And in Revelations, there's a great promise that says that at the right time, Revelations 11 verse 15, when the seventh angel sounded, there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and His Christ. And He shall reign forever and ever. That's the promise we have. Amen? That's the promise that we have. That all kinds of kingdoms, good kingdoms, raw kingdoms, it will come under the rulership of Jesus, whether they like it at that point in time. But in the meantime, God's kingdom is not of this world. So when you're in the ministry and you want to serve this king of kings, let's hold this carefully. We can be distracted and we can be discouraged if we don't see the results as how others would tell us. Point number two, God's power, not mine. It is His power entirely, not mine. Now, the word power is dunamis, as we know. And it's not just about explosives. I know we get the word dynamite from, from dunamis. And even the Pentecostals, when they preach Acts chapter 1, verse 8, they have to have a certain, and you shall receive power. You know, must have a little bit of emphasis down there, right? Huh? Just to make sure God explosion. The mic must pop. The word dunamis just means the ability to get things done. It's as straightforward as that. And it is God's abilities to get things done His way at the right time for His kingdom. Now we have to be careful because it is very easy to confuse our talents and our gifts with the power of God. Did you hear that? Do we have talents? 
Do we have gifts? Do we have abilities in of ourselves? Yes, we do. These are things that God has given to us. But is it not so? It's so easy that when I do something well and things happen, I can think that it is the power of God. But actually, I'm only relying on myself. And the truth is, we can do a lot of things without God's power. We can. And it's been said many times, the Holy Spirit doesn't even turn up, we can still run the church service quite well. Can pray and people can fall down some more. We have the ability to get things done. That's the whole problem. And so this is like a, such a fine line. When is it God's power? How do I move on God's power? Not that your abilities are not good. Not that your giftings are not good. No. Jesus gave the parable, the story, to say that God gives resources according to the abilities that He has given to each and every one of us. So it's good that you have natural talents and good stuff. And we are all gifted in one way or another. How do we depend on God's power? Let me give you some of these points. First is, you have to realize it is not what we say, it is the power of God's Word. We have to rely on His Word. When God speaks, He speaks things into being. And so as prophetic people, we hear what God says and we declare what He says. That's His power. Today is scary because we are beginning to declare things and make God do what we declare. When the true prophetic unction, I believe, is we hear what God tells us and then we declare. Then it is the power of God that comes upon His Word to do according to His will. We don't tell God what to do. At times, He gives us that privilege. He gives us that latitude. But let us not take that for granted. The power of God's Word, to be able to hear His Word, speak His Word, and move according to His Word. It's not more Bible study we need. It's not more teaching that we should attend. And this does not mean you don't come back when we resume Kingdom 101. I'm saying to you, as you're listening to this Word, are you learning something from this Word? It's not about the Word being legalistic. It's not the dead letter of this printed book where some have taken this book to slap people and kill them because the dead letter kills. The letter of the law will kill people. It's not the power to kill people. It's the power to bring life. And if you're not moving with that kind of power, you're not seeing that kind of a power, then chances are you might be moving on your own power. And as a teacher of the Word, as a preacher of the Word, I'm praying, Oh God, I thank You. You've given me an ability to teach and to preach. But God forbid that I rely on this ability to teach only. If your power of your Word doesn't move forth, I will touch no one in and through this teaching. Amen? And it humbles me, it keeps me on my knees and say, God, it's Your power, it's not mine. Oh, I tell you, it's so easy to, to let my head grow big. Each time I finish a teaching, someone comes up to me and pets me. And, wow, so anointed, you know. Wow, my head can grow so big, you know. Because I, I'm happy to lap up all that, all that glory. But is it God's power? Yes, it is. If there's an anointing, it is God's power. I can say thank you, but please God, help my heart. Because it can go the wrong way. The second is we really need the power of the Holy Spirit. Of course, we know Acts 1.8, which we spoke a little bit about just now. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes 
upon you. And this is the enablement of the Holy Spirit. And I've said many times, it's not just the enablement of signs and wonders of miracles. That's one aspect. But do you realize that in Acts chapter 2, when they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, they were enabled to share things in common with one another. How many of us still struggle with that? See, this is the power of the Holy Spirit we're talking about. It's not how long you speak in tongues or how loud. You can jabber all you want, but if you're you're tight-fisted, your wallet is still stuck, you know, somewhere else, then there's no ability, there's no power of the Holy Spirit to have moved upon you that you can be a blessing of this kingdom resource. How about the power of transformation? The power of yielding to the Holy Spirit? The power to be changed by the Holy Spirit? If we have been in church and nothing has changed, guess what? We have relied on our own power and not the power of the Holy Spirit. The power of prayer. That's what this disciples' prayer is all about. It is a kingdom prayer where we petition the Father, we petition the King. When we're asking for all these things, your kingdom come, your will be done. We are saying, God, if you don't help us, we are done. Lord, if your power does not come, if your enablement does not come, if you don't break through, if you don't answer these prayers, we have nothing, we can't do anything. This is the power of prayer. We're asking, help me to forgive as you've forgiven us. Give me the resources so I can do what you've asked me to do. Lead me not into temptation. Test me, but hold me steady because by myself, I cannot make it. It's His power, not ours. What are you praying for? You see, if we've only been praying, oh Lord, give me this, oh Lord, give me that, oh Lord, give me that again, then what power do we need? And if we don't need His power for any one of those things, then we just rely on ourselves. And so a lot of Christians, they, they rely on themselves and then they don't experience the power of God and they wonder what is wrong. Next is the power of faith. And I, whenever I talk about faith, I will add in the word obedience. And it will do yourself a good favor if you would hold these two words synonymously. Every time you mention faith, think obedience. After you believe, and if you really believe, will you be willing to step into what you say you believe? If you say you believe God for all these things, then will you then step into the next step because you said you believe in this God, then why don't I see it in your obedience? So it's not just the power of believing and asking for things because we love that teaching, don't we? If you pray believing, then you shall receive. Hallelujah. It's not faith. It's not just for that. James says, you want to show me faith? Show me the works. There has to be obedience. You say you believe. I'm not very impressed. The demons also believe. You believe? Very good. Something must come out of that belief. The demons believe. You know what comes out? They tremble. What's your response after you say you believe? So if there's a power of faith and obedience, I challenge you, this is what it means. If you believe and you're willing to take God as His word, you step forth. You see the power of God move. You see God come through in your situations. Amen? And you will never experience that until you step out in faith, in obedience. There's something called the power of godliness. I don't think we preach this very often. We don't mention this often. The word godliness simply means personal piety, your personal devotion to the Lord. 
your personal reverence, your, your attitudes and your habits towards God. And in some sense, it can fringe towards a certain... Um, you can be fairly religious in some of these things because if I want to pray every day, that's what I need to do. If I like to bow down and I like to kneel, then my personal piety is expressed religiously in that context. Can I tell you now, once and for all, there's nothing wrong with being religious in this way. Is that okay? There's nothing wrong with this. But if you only bank on all these things and rely on all these things, and it becomes a form rather than what is truly from your heart. Then Paul warns Timothy, he says, you be careful because in the last days, there'll be many people like that. They will have a form of piety, a form of godliness, a form of religiosity, but they deny the power. And that is why today, there's this whole talk about, oh, Christianity is not religion, it's relationship. I know what they're trying to say, but can you don't poo-poo religion there's a place for being religious with God if your heart is in the right place. But it is wrong if you only see to it as a form and you deny its power. Where are you in experiencing God's power? You see? These are indicators. You've got to look at your own life and your own walk and your own ministry and as you serve. Is it God's power or is it your own? As you ponder that, my concern these days would be counterfeit power. Not so much ourselves trying to wayang or be hypocrites. That in itself is bad enough. But today we have counterfeit power. Paul has already warned about this. He calls it a different gospel, a different spirit, a different Jesus. He says, I want you to be very careful because there will be people who will tell you something that is different and you may well put up with it. I think you realize that it is not that easy to discern some of these things. But we are seeing many variations of spiritual things or things attributed to the Holy Spirit through different denominations and different doctrines and different teachings. We are beginning to hear different Gospels. What is the true Gospel? What is this Gospel all about? Are we having the right Gospel? And everyone points to Jesus today, well and good. But what kind of Jesus is this? Is it Jesus the healer? Jesus the friend? Jesus the give you everything you want? Or is it Jesus the king of all kings? Which Jesus is this? And what power comes out of that? How about the Gnostic influence in the new age, which is really old age? It's not new. 2,000 years ago, they struggled with Gnostic influence and the new age. 2,000 years later, we call it marketing, you repackage it. And you slap a few Bible verses on it, and it sounds exactly the same like Christianity, but you move with Gnostic influence. And the word Gnostic comes from the word Gnosis, which means knowledge. And really, pause for a moment, think, read the things, and listen to certain messages. People now claim to have special revelation and prophetic knowledge, don't they? That they are the super ones. They are the real ones. They are the ones who go into the presence of God. But not us. But if you want to follow them, then this is what you need to do. You have to have this key to unlock certain things. This is the kind of words that we're hearing nowadays. And we lap it all up because we're thinking, oh wow, they are more spiritual. They are more anointed. They know. 
John had to address this in 1 John, 2 John, and also 3 John. And he says, look, you, you already know. By the Holy Spirit, you already know all things. You just need to discern. This is what it means to be a believer in Christ. This is what it means to love God. This is what it means to, to obey His commands. This is what it means to abide in Him and He in you. Why are you listening to all these people giving you all this special revelation? Here comes the scary thing. These people come and take the exact same verse and tell you, but by the Holy Spirit, you'll know all things. So you don't need to attend Kingdom 101 anymore. You don't need to attend teachings anymore because you already know. You can tap into the zone. Same verse, twisted two ways. Gnostic influence. Supernatural manifestations. If you live for these experiences only, can be dangerous because it says that the Antichrist will show and he will deceive with signs and lying wonders. Now, we just said God's power gives us the ability to have miracles, signs, and wonders. That's the real power. Do you know that Pharaoh's magicians counterfeited and also paralleled any move that Moses did by the power of God? And so today when I see testimonies all over the place, I say, Lord, please help me. Don't let me become cynical. Don't let me become skeptical until I become a cessationist that I believe you do not heal anymore, right? Does God still heal? Yes. Does He do wonders and miracles? Yes. But can the enemy fake it? Yes. So you be careful if someone's ministry is only validated by signs and wonders. The Bible doesn't tell us to only look at that. Ministries today also, and even for ourselves, we, we go by the powers of the world, worldly indicators and success. If we have a large following, ministry must be good. If they have a lot of finances, must be correct because they've been blessed of God. If we have the right status, the correct position, that's what it is, reputation. If you, be, if you become a who's who in the Christian world, you've made it. You, this must be God's power. This must be God's approval for you. I'm not saying it's not. I'm just saying it might not be. And as we look at this, does it not ring something in, your, in our hearts when we talk about our keeper's awakening? That our keeper's is a nobody. Perhaps, could it be that God is awakening the nobodies in our midst? Because the world today only looks at the somebodies. And that's why it's challenging for us as nobodies because when we get out there as our keepers, they'll look at you and say, who? But it's okay for that because it is God's kingdom. It's God's power. And I tell you, Paul gave us the key. You know what's true power? You'll find true power in the way of weakness. True power is found in the way of weakness. Paul says, in case I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations. Paul, he was so upset with, with these false apostles and teachers. He got so upset. He said, you see, because of you, I have to boast. Right? You say you do miracles. I also do miracles. Right? You're trying to discredit me. But look, I'm telling you, I'm the least of the apostles, but I do miracles. You want to talk about revelations? I also have revelations. In fact, I know of someone. He didn't say, I know myself. Huh? I know of someone who has gone into the third heaven. You want to go into the throne room? I've been to the throne room. And then he says in verse 7, Lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me. 
I don't argue with you what this thorn is. That will take another one hour. But we know it's a messenger of Satan to buffet me. For Singaporeans, we read buffet. <laughs> Lest I be exalted above measure. Paul is saying this simply. You know what? Why God has allowed this into my life, into the situation that I'm in? It humbles me. It keeps me where I should be. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. That's all you need, my grace. And if you learn this well, then God says, my strength is made perfect in weakness. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure. I take pleasure. How many of us can say that? I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is true power. Friends, this is true power. The way of weakness. That's why Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are you who are broken. Broken. And sometimes God needs to allow us to come to that point to realize, I'm not very strong, God. Whatever I want to do, you know, all these things that I, I think I'm so good at, Lord, Lord, apart from you, I am nothing. That's true power, friends. And it is God's power. It is not ours. So don't rule over people when you get to a certain position. We hear this in churches. The moment they get to a leadership position or they, they are more experienced somewhere else, they start to run people down and criticize others. And don't manipulate, don't control and all. Serve them from a point of weakness. Jesus says, don't be like the ruler of the Gentiles, lording over others. Serve one another. That's true power. Finally, we look at the third point, God's glory, not mine. This word glory in the Hebrew is kabod, which means weightiness or heaviness. When you say someone is worth his weight, it doesn't mean he's fat, right? It just means that he means what he says, right? What he, what he tells himself to be or what he claims is exactly his, he's worth that weight, because they used to cheat people with either gold or something like that, no? and where they put impurities in it, where the gold was declared of a certain weight, but actually there are impurities in there, it was not worth its weight. Kabod means that, a weightiness and a heaviness. In the New Testament, the Greek word is doxa, which can mean praise, where you attribute praise to someone, or you give an opinion of someone. And God's glory, it's all of Himself. And when He appears with His glory, He's glorious. And that's why in Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, at the temple dedication, after Solomon dedicated the temple, the glory of God came and filled the temple and the priests couldn't stand to minister. It was that, that weight of that glory that came upon them. Now personally, I've never experienced that to that kind of an extent. I, I've experienced a little bit of, you know, perhaps being overwhelmed by, by just sensing God is present or He's speaking to us. We may weep, we may cry, you know, but when we're talking about that fullness of the glory, personally, I cannot claim 
to have experienced that. If you have, praise God for that. But it's that weightiness that comes and you just can't do anything because that's how big God is and how great He is. As I reflect upon this, I, I can't help but wonder, there are some ministry that claim that, you know what, they're worshipping, there's a glory cloud that comes into the room. Right? And, and the cloud that comes in the room and everyone looks at the crowd and they go, wow, look at that cloud. If the glory was really there, do you think they would have been able to go, whoa, cool, man, video, Instagram? I really doubt it. You understand my, my questioning? And today, there are teachings that are going all over the place. That you are in the glory zone. Now, forgive me because I'm not there yet. I'm learning but I want to be careful. Is that amen? And I'm highlighting this to you because, you see, if you don't know your Bible, then whatever someone tells you, you're going to believe. It's God's glory. It's not ours to generate. I pray He comes right now and I fall flat. I don't need to preach. Amen. God's glory can be seen as intrinsic glory or ascribed glory. Intrinsic is what I've just described to you that God's fullness of Himself. That's how glorious He is. No matter what you say, what you do, that's His glory. His entire person is glorious. So when Moses said, Lord, show me your glory, what he meant was, God, I want to, I want to have all of you, everything about you, not just your presence with me, but your, the full weight of glory. And God says, oh, you don't know what you're asking for. I tell you what, I show you a glimpse, Right? And even with that glimpse, Moses came down with his face shining. Can you imagine if the full glory was manifested? That's the intrinsic glory of God. But here we're talking about the ascribed glory. You say, Lord, yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, and yours is the glory. All praise belongs to you. All honor belongs to you. Everything must be ascribed to you. We can't even take a bit of that because if it's your kingdom, if it's your power, you're the one doing it, you're the one ordaining it, who gets the praise? You. So God tells us, and through Paul, he says in 1 Corinthians, right? You don't even know. God has taken the base things to confound those things that are supposed to be more. The foolish things to confound that of the wise. The weak things to confound that is strong. Because at the end of the day, let him who glories, glory in the Lord. Amen? And that's why the faster we learn that, the better. Amen? So that in everything, we keep pointing to God. God receives all glory, everything, everything. All we are, we are jars of clay, earthen vessels, given this privilege to, to carry the glory, the treasure of the glory in us. Oh, that's awesome, right? I mean, what, a, what an honor. So that when the glory is manifested in and through us, through our words and through our actions and through our assignments, the things that we do, we cannot say, it's me, God. It is God's glory. He receives all honor and all glory. And as we serve God in our ministries, we have to remember this. Because we want to give Him all glory, we must, we, we must make it a point not to, not to seek to please men. We seek to please God and to praise God and bring Him all glory. How, how would our ministry change? How would it change? Just think about it for a moment. If you begin to live with this mandate, this one line as your guiding principle, that everything you say and everything you do is done to the glory of God, 
because He deserves this and even more. But I love our God because He's so gracious that although He says, look, all glory goes to Him, it does belong to Him. Do you know that we get to share in that glory? This is the promise I'm going to give to you. I want to encourage you with this. We have Christ in us, the hope of glory. And please read the verse in its context. What is it premised upon? It's not just us shouting, oh, Christ in us, the hope of glory, Christ in us, the hope of glory, and then immediately, you know, we're going to receive that, that realized hope of glory. Paul actually says in Colossians chapter 1, 27 to 29, where he says, Christ in you, the hope of glory, he continues in verse 28, Him we preach, warning. Can you see? Love the blessings first, but can you heed the warning? Warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. The extent of your glory is premised upon the extent of your maturity in Christ. Would that be good? So if you're declaring Christ in us, the hope of glory, He's given us the potential, He's given us the promises, let's now grow up and receive this glory that is due to you in time to come. John chapter 17, verses 4 and 5, Jesus Himself prayed this. He says, Father, I've glorified You on the earth. I've finished the work which You have given Me to do. Now, O Father, glorify Me together with Yourself with the glory which I had with You before the world was. Faithfulness in our assignments. This is the Christ. He can say, give Me the glory I shared with You. We can't say that. All we can say is, Father, I've glorified you in and through the assignments you've given to me. I've finished the work that you've asked me to do. You've given me an assignment. I've been faithful to do it as best as I can. Now, Lord, thank you. You will glorify me when I meet with you. That's part of the inheritance and part of the rewards. But guess what? When you move on the assignment, you're going to get knocked a little bit here and there. And to the extent we suffer for the sake of Jesus, we will also be glorified together with Him. Yes? I better preach the whole counsel of God, right? So the more we suffer for His sake, the more glory we shall receive when we meet with Him. And that is why those who lost their heads for Jesus, it says in Revelations right at the end, these will reign with Christ in a thousand years. So the fastest way to glory is to lose our head. Right? That's true. That's what the Bible says. But you see, all of us, when we meet with the Lord, there will be different levels of glory. Follow? Paul says this, right? The sun is got of one glory. The moon, super moon. The stars, right? They're all glorious, but different levels, different intensity. And so it shall be the same for all of us, depending on how we live for Jesus. How gracious that God shares His glory with us. You see, that's a hope that we have. And so friends, it is God's kingdom. It's God's power. It's God's glory. Not ours at all. You must remember this. And it concludes by saying, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. God's kingdom is forever, you know that. His power will be forever. He created everything. He sustained everything. He will hold all things together for His praise and for His glory and for His name. All glory will be with Him and for Him and belongs to Him. But we who are with Him and belong to Him get to share in that forever. That's what it means 
And it ends with amen. You can take this to the bank. So be it. So it shall be. It's a trustworthy saying. As you pray this prayer, as you live this prayer, as you serve the Lord, so it shall be. This is the promise. This is the hope that we have. And so in conclusion, I draw you to the final word there called for. The very first word, for just means because. It is a conjunctive. It joins this one line with the entire prayer that we have prayed. You can say, Lord, you are great in heaven. You are my Abba Father. Lord, I'm praying for your kingdom to come, your will to be done. I'm working in tandem with you and I'm going through forgiveness. Uh, I struggle with unforgiveness. Help me, Lord, so that I'm not held back. And Lord, you give me provision and I'm going to move on this assignment. I get whacked here and there. There are temptations. Lord, help me to pass the test. And I tell you, things don't appear as they should as we are moving on this assignment. But we are able to pray all this and keep going through because... Yours is the kingdom. Because yours is the power. Because yours is the glory. And so whenever you hit a difficult patch, friends, Lord, I don't understand, man. Lord, I'm down, man. Lord, I'm discouraged. Lord, I'm tired. But I can go on. Because yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. And yours will be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So friends, what are you praying for? What are you praying for? What's your focus when you pray? What's your perspective when you minister? What's your hope to look to when you face a difficult time? So as we close the disciples' prayer, let me encourage you, disciples of Jesus Christ. It's God's kingdom, not ours. It's God's power not ours. And it is God's glory, not ours. What a privilege that we get to share in everything that He releases to us. Let's pray together and give Him praise. Hallelujah. Father God, we thank You, we praise You, Lord. We say, Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. Yours is the glory. And Lord, we know there are times, many times in fact, where we build our own ministries, we we build our own kingdoms, we set our own boundaries, we protect our own territories, we are afraid of losing things to someone else. Forgive our insecurity, Lord, because at the end of the day, it is your kingdom. Lord, there are times where we move our own ability, our own strength, and we can do quite well even apart from you. But Lord, this evening we acknowledge we need you. We need your power. We need you to work through us, Lord, your word, your Holy Spirit. Lord, we need to pray because we acknowledge our great need of you. And Lord, we ask that you will direct us, Lord, that we don't fall into a form of godliness, but deny its power. We can do church and miss the kingdom. And Lord, finally, because it is your kingdom and you establish it only by your power, then for sure, yours is the glory. All glory and praise is due to you. We give you honor. We lift up the name of Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, Lord, because you will receive all things to yourself, Lord. And this is your kingdom. It's a glorious kingdom, a mighty kingdom. All the kingdoms of this world will become yours. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to participate, to work with you, to walk with you, Lord. Teach us, Lord. Guide us so that we will live for you, our King, and for your kingdom. It's not about us. 
is always about you. Zion, not mine. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.